live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Organization Conversation. Brought to you by Wall Control Storage Systems. Wall Control gives you the storage and organization you crave. Now, here's your host, Richard Grove. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Organization Conversation. Um, I'm joined today by three great guests that I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with. Um, if you're a regular listener, listener of the show, today's going to be a little bit different. Um, we're kind of going to shift gears a bit and turn the lens or camera around and not so much on the wall looking at wall control storage, but <laughs> talking about or having organization conversations about organizations and small businesses in general. So we have found over time that our listeners are entrepreneurs, small business owners, business operators, um, all themselves. So we thought it would be a great value to them to have some experts on in that space and just kind of talk about what we're seeing across business, across the marketplace, you know, macro landscape, and just kind of dive into some, some topics that kind of everybody is curious about what everybody else is doing. So um, all of our guests today, extremely knowledgeable and experienced business coaches, advisors, entrepreneurs themselves. Um, so rather than going through very long intros on all of them, I'm going to introduce them and kind of let them go into uh Tell them about tell tell you guys about themselves and what they specialize in. So, without further ado, I am joined by Tim Fulton of Small Business Matters, John Ray of Business Radio X, as well as Ray Business Advisors. Little side note: John also produces the Organization Conversation Radio Show. So, if you've ever seen pictures, he's the guy behind the board, you know, making making everything sound good. And Jonathan Goldhill. So, and Jonathan's with the Goldhill Group. And uh, yeah, so I'm joined in studio with John and Tim, and Jonathan uh, has commuted via Zoom from Southampton, New York. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it off with you, Jonathan, and let you tell our audience a little bit about yourself just because you had the furthest commute. Sure. Well, the commute was really easy. I have to say the view here in Southampton is pretty nice. Um, I'm normally based in the Los Angeles area. I'm a business coach and have been since 2004 been small business consulting since 1987. Uh, Actually got a degree in entrepreneurship, if you can believe it. Some people said, like, why would you ever go to school to study entrepreneurship? But, you know, my my family, my my grandfather and his brothers started a a clothing business at the turn of last century, and it it blew up to a very large company. Um, They sold it uh, 40 years ago. But I've always been interested in family businesses. Uh, there was a lot of success in my family's business. And so I've been coaching for, gosh, since 2004. And I wrote a book on family businesses and how to scale them. And so that's a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. And most of my clients are people that are in unsexy industries. They're in construction. They're in real estate. They're in property management. They're in service-based businesses and manufacturing companies. Um, so that's pretty much the space that I play in these days, but I've worked in a lot of industries over many years. So it's a bit about me. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, John, we can just keep working down the line here. Sure. Uh, and thanks for having me on it. It's, uh, I appreciate the invite, Richard. So I've got two businesses. I've got a business advisory practice, uh, where I do some outside CFO work, but it's mostly focused around pricing consulting. And because, uh, I've come to believe 
And this was a problem once upon a time for me. So I, I came to believe this, uh, and I see this in a lot of businesses, that pricing is their biggest problem, particularly for businesses that uh, sell what's between their ears, basically professional services. Mm-hmm. And even ever, I mean, I, us lately, it's been insane. So, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's just sure crazy um, time for pricing. Absolutely. And so, um, so I do a lot of consulting around pricing and how to uh, price more effectively. And uh, uh, so that's... Uh, that particular business. And then, as you said, um, I operate a studio of North Fulton of business radio X, and we help businesses that want to do their own podcast and use a podcast to really move the needle in their business, a revenue needle in their business. For sure. And I'm, I'm going to jump in and say too, everybody who's here today has their own podcast. So before we sign (laughs) off, you guys will have to tell our listeners where to find you and listen to each of you. So, yeah. So Tim, well, First, Richard, I'm I'm envious of Jonathan. I didn't know that reporting from the beach was an option. You could have done that. Uh-huh. that I, See, I know I know where you live, so I I was like, you want to? I didn't give you the options. Yeah. yeah, but I'm very very envious. And and like Jonathan, I I grew up as an entrepreneur. I was one of those kids, and uh, as a young kid, cut neighbors' yards and deliver newspapers and sell bumper stickers at school. Just always looking for different ways of making money as an entrepreneur. I was I was just always interested in that and went off to school and got a business degree and one of the few kids uh, in in my class that didn't go to work in New York on Wall Street or go to work for an insurance company or a bank. I thought, why? Why would anyone want to work for someone else? Crazy idea. So um, I was an entrepreneur. I had a number of small businesses that I started and grew and sold and then I'd start over again and did that for a number of years and then found that as much as I enjoyed that, uh, I enjoyed just as much working with entrepreneurs as a coach, as a mentor, as a trainer. And that's where I've spent a good part of the last 20, 25 years. I've got a consulting practice, as you mentioned, it's called Small Business Matters. Uh, I've got a mastermind group that I that I chair, it meets every, every week. I've got about a dozen business owners that I work with as a, as a coach, as an executive coach. And then I also have a training program uh, that I do uh, for for small business owners. Uh, I got the best of all worlds. Yeah, that's awesome. And I've enjoyed um, you know some of your seminars for sure. It's been super valuable. So anybody listening, especially if you're in the Atlanta area, it, it's cool to be there in person. But I think you can be there virtually too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah, because we have kind of people all over the place, um, which is which is nice. So yeah. So. I think to get things started and we can kind of, we'll just keep it conversational wherever we want to go with it. Um, I kind of like to start with what you guys are seeing as uh, challenges kind of at a macro level um, in the spaces you're in and, and kind of, I guess, speak to uh, specifically if you have any, you know, John, you were mentioning pricing, any specific uh, expertise that you offer your clients, that might be a good opportunity there. So and again, we'll just go back, Jonathan, if you don't mind, we can start with you and then we'll just, we'll go down and just kind of everybody jump in. And I would like for all of us to kind of interview each other if we happen to have any questions on anything or want to dive deeper on something. Well, I think I'll jump in and start with something that's happening on the macro level, but it's always been happening for a long time. And I think all of you guys, uh, my panelists will agree with me on this, which is That if you want to be a leader, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to be a learner. If you're not learning, if you're not participating in in seminars and workshops, you're not reading books, you're not listening uh, to podcasts, you're not sitting in uh, CEO peer groups or 
you know, if you're not exposed to other entrepreneurs, then you're in the dark. If you're a small business person and you're trying to figure things out by yourself, I, I don't know what size your business is, but you know, if you're under a million and you're trying to figure things out by yourself, like there's a lot of people like us who have gone before you that you need to get in front of. If you're running a hundred million dollar company and you're not out uh, talking to other CEOs of larger companies and understanding the challenges that they're working through and, and leading and managing people, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. And so just want to set the stage with something that's it's so basic. It's it's not specific to inflation or pricing or labor shortages. It's about learning. You will learn about all of those things if you're in the company of peers and learning in the you know, you're in the right rooms learning. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I can say firsthand, you, you know, it's easy for me to just be a guy that's stuck in a warehouse doing things the way I think they need to be done. And it can be paralyzing. And even if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm not confident in that, I'm not moving as quickly as I could. Whereas if I had, you know, validation from a peer group of similar individuals, it would help me be a lot more effective and move a lot quicker. So that's a really, really good point. And I want to build on that because I think, you know, not only is there real importance in in being a, a lifetime learner as a business owner, looking for opportunities to, to learn more and to read and attend workshops. It's also very lonely as a small business owner. I know I felt that way. I didn't always have someone I could talk to about not only my successes, but a lot of failures. And, and I wish I had, I, I didn't have a peer group other than, you know, family and my family got tired very quickly of hearing about my business and so, uh, you know, that's why I've always felt the peer groups were really important, particularly for, for you know, small business owners, for the opportunity to grow, to learn uh, additional layer of accountability for the business owners. So I would encourage any of our listeners, if you're not already involved in some type of peer group, a mastermind group, that would be a, a great piece of advice. And get a coach too, by the way, Tim, right? People should work. With, if you don't have a coach, you're not being coached. You don't have a mentor. Yeah. You know, you can have multiple mentors, you can have several coaches, you know, but definitely reach out, get some help. Yeah, All right, John. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I love the theme here that you guys are on because and, and when we get it around to pricing, I know everybody wants us to talk about pricing and inflation and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but um for me, pricing is a journey. In fact, the name of my podcast is Price Value Journey. The price and value journey, and Absolutely. and it's th that name for a reason is because you're always trying to get to the right point, and I think it's something elusive that you never feel like you quite get to, right? Um, and iterative over time, and yeah, that's a lot right. Of micro adjustments for sure. Yeah, so particularly in that part of the business, and I think it's true in all areas of the business, as uh, as uh, Jonathan and Tim have talked about, but. In pricing, in particular, it's true. There's no like special uh, recipe to get there. I, there's there's a lot of science in in it and uh, behavioral science, but there's an art to it as well. And you're always uh, tweaking, I think, your pricing and how to get to the right point. Yeah, and I think I remember Tim and your boot camp talking about just the impact of discounting and how like. A 5% discount, like what that does to your margin total. And it sounds obvious when you say it, but I don't think people think about it sometimes, or they just, they go to price match their competitor, but they don't think about what they're actually taking off the table for themselves. Even, you know, maybe you convert 
at a little bit higher percentage, but you're losing a whole lot more money. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's a very uh, comprehensive like mental algorithm you have to have when you start looking at that. You know, John, I'd be curious to hear what you're telling your clients now around price. I, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a client. On one hand, he's feeling a lot of inflationary pressure. Mm-hmm. His costs have gone up. His costs of labor have gone up. His costs of materials have gone up. He's a manufacturer. And then he said, Tim, at the other hand, I'm not sure I can raise my prices because I feel like the economy is is beginning to decelerate a mm-hmm. little bit, starting to slow down a little bit. I'm not sure I can pass on these price increases. What what are you seeing and what are you telling your clients in that regard? Well, what what I tell people generally, and of course it depends on what business you have, right? So let's put that uh, caveat out there. But um, I think it's a, the wrong message to talk about price potential price increases as it relates to inflation. That's the obvious way to go. Mm-hmm. To say, hey, my costs have gone up, and therefore I have to raise my price. The problem with that is the your clients don't care <laughs> what your costs are. They could care less. What they care about is the value that your product or service offers them. They they care about the benefits. So you've got to couch your pricing relative to the value that the client receives. Part of the problem that I've seen, Tim, and I'm interested in what you and Jonathan have to say about this, but what I'm seeing with a lot of clients is they haven't tended to their pricing in years, right? And so this little uh, bout of inflation or big bout of inflation, I guess, that we are experiencing right now has really hit them hard because they haven't regularly tended to their pricing over time. And I think that's a lesson is that you always have to be looking at that. And, um, and so because they haven't done that, they're really caught flat-footed in in a lot of ways, right? So, um, but it's really the the customer is going to compare, and if you've got to give them the point of comparison, and if you're talking about your cost or you're talking about the economy or some amorphous kind of concept, as opposed to the value that you're delivering to them, both tangible and intangible. That's a mistake. And I think that's where I'm trying to get the clients I work with is talk is understanding what perceived customer value is and pricing relative to that. Gotcha. One, one question I have for all three of you guys to just to help clarify it for our audience. Um, so John, you were talking about your client mostly between the ears. So probably consulting services, that sort of thing. Is that what your, your, your typical client, maybe not like a widget manufacturer, like we would be, but somebody who's doing something, um, yeah, with their, with kind of creating value out of thin air, so to speak, not making a thing. Sure. Sure. And, but you know, it, uh, and let's talk specifically about makers, right? Cause mm-hmm. this is the maker community is, are the listeners here, right? Yeah, so quite a few. <laughs> yeah. So, um, a lot of makers have a mindset problem. I mean, and their problem is, is that they, um, think who is going to pay that price right? That's the, that's the mentality. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is that pricing is something of a marketing signal. If your price is too low, your price, your marketing signal is a signal of inferiority. Mm -hmm. Your pricing, uh, higher, it's a signal of quality. And I'd love to tell a story about that if you don't mind. Go right ahead. Yeah. Um, 
So the real life story, I've got a friend of mine who he is a craftsman. He's retired now and he does wood crafts. He sells, uh, one of his, uh, items that he sells are wood, wooden fret crosses. Well, you've seen these things are very intricate. They take hours to make. And he was out at a craft show and selling these crosses for, you know, $40. And he got to the end of the weekend. He hadn't sold any. And so he was, time was running out. He decided he was going to mark them down and get them out because, you know, if you don't sell them, you have to take them home. Right. So, um, he heard this voice in the booth next to him. What are you doing? And it was the lady that was running the booth next to him. And he, he said, I'm going to mark these down so I can get rid of them. And she said, you're out of your mind. Let me price them for you. And he said, fine, what I'm doing is not working. So you go ahead. She priced them at $125. And before he left that day in an hour, he sold three of them. Wow. He now prices these crosses at $200 plus. Mm-hmm. They're probably still too low, but they're, they're never mind. Yeah. Uh, but, and he routinely sells out every weekend. He takes these crosses out. So that's a real maker story right yeah. there. Right. I agree. I mean, yeah. And so the problem is, is that when you've got a $40 wood, wooden fret cross that takes hours to make price at $40, what signal are you sending? You're sending a signal that this is made in some foreign country or something like that. This is not a handcrafted item by a real wood craftsman like it really is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've, the other, the other bit of that too, is it's much harder to raise your price than it is to lower your price once you've introduced it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I see that with our own product and some, some smaller brands that I'll help coach that there's one, um, it's called Wallworks. It's a, like a, a plastic Mason jar that goes into our system, works with any pegboard. And it's like, I've told them over and over, you can price this higher. Like we have it priced twice what your retail is on our website and we're selling a bunch of them. He's talking talks with Walmart and Home Depot and that kind of thing. And I'm like, you got to start high. You can always come back down. And the other Mm -hmm. thing I've learned is if you start low and you keep trying to go low, you're basically because of a competitor, you're kind of commoditizing what you do and it's Mm going to just be a race to the bottom. Whereas if you hold and then you bring along the brand, the brand story, kind of like, you know, what we try to do with our podcast and what we do with a lot of this is create the value there, like introduce, introduce your audience to yourself and introduce your audience to the behind the scenes and that kind of thing. And then, then you can, then you're not in this never ending, you know, fist fight to the bottom. So, right. uh, that's, that's kind of what we've learned. So, yeah. So, so Jonathan, what's your, uh, yeah, ideal, I, I feel, ideal client look like? <laughs> my, I mean, my experience is along the same lines, which is. I never have clients who are low price leaders because none of them are large enough to fight that battle down, you know, down to the bottom. And I'm always dealing with clients who are selling on quality and selling on value. And so let's, let's change the equation to identifying what is it that you do that's, that's different, that's better. Maybe that's unique, you know, come up with what, what everyone classically calls a unique selling proposition or value proposition and, and sell the value and sell the service. I mean, for a lot of services, businesses, um, the only thing that customers know how to discriminate on is price. And so, you know, you have an HVAC repair person coming to your house and what one person is charging 89 for a service call, one's charging 129. They don't know the difference between the two. So it's incumbent 
upon the the seller, the service company, to communicate that value and and to sell that value. And I'm sure you guys all agree. I mean, probably most of us don't work with companies that are low price leaders and are trying to play that game. It's just you know, it's it's too difficult. Yeah, can so, I? Yeah, yeah I, to underline your point, Jonathan. Um, everybody thinks Walmart's like the low price leader, and they've got the low. They they can put everybody out of business, right? If you look at Aldi, their pri- their cost structure is actually lower than Walmart. And so, what does that tell you? <laughs> it underlines what you just said, Jonathan. That um, you cannot. As a small business, if Walmart can't do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you you cannot get your cost to a point where you can compete on lowest price. Yeah, you, you'll 100%. never be able to do that as a smaller business. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, yeah. the data on Costco used to be that eighty five percent or seventy five percent of of their profits came from their membership income because their margins are razor thin. So, you know, they're selling an exclusive value based. Uh, service in the membership. Yeah. What about you, Tim? What does your ideal client look like and what kind of challenges are you seeing um, in the space? My clients vary. They're all, they're all relatively small businesses, growth businesses, but they vary. I've got manufacturers, I've got resellers, I've got service businesses. You know, what they, what they share mostly is a desire, uh, one for their company to grow and, and hand in hand in that is their own growth as, as well. But probably the biggest issue that I'm seeing now, not that pricing is not, because pricing is a big issue now, is around people, is around talent. And it's, you know, being able to, to secure talent. It's being able to retain talent. Um, it seems like every meeting I go into, it's, I, you know, I've got a job opening. I can't find anybody. I can't keep anybody. You know, we've been through this this great resignation where 40 million people left their jobs. And what's interesting now is the I find the labor market is beginning to open up just a little bit, yeah. what I'm hearing. Some of those people that resigned are, are now thinking, okay, maybe I should go back to work. I've run out of government money. I've run out of this. I've run Now I've got to go back and, and make money. So it's starting to reopen, but there's still a lot of movement uh, in the labor market. Um, you know, I hear from from clients that, you know, somebody was supposed to start on Monday and they didn't show up or they showed up and they left on Tuesday. It's it's a crazy time. And, and then is. we've got these decisions about, you know, businesses that went remote, you know, during COVID. And now they're thinking about bringing their employees back. And, you know, do we do we bring them all back? Do we do a hybrid approach? Do we do we companies now talking about four day work weeks? That's kind of the new thing that companies are talking about is, you know, should we go to a four day work week? So it's all these decisions around people that are kind of centered on, you know, how can we find the best people? How can we keep the best people? And boy, if, if I had the answer to that, I'd be a wealthy man. But that's what I'm yeah. hearing probably more often than anything with my clients. Yeah, we're seeing it firsthand. It's just and we're in a strange sort of kind of holding pattern just to see, you know, kind of sitting in a defensive posture, kind of looking at what's going to happen. I mean, Wayfair just laid off, I think, 5% of its workforce today or yesterday. With the, And we track very closely with these, you know, the Wayfairs, the Home Depots, because, you know, we're selling, you know, hardware into that same space. So, um, yeah, just kind of waiting to see. I think we're, you know, I think we're right-sized right now, but it's like you want to, you know, you want to keep your good people. Um, you don't want to bring on extra people. I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a hard – and it's never been – in my, you know, 15 years doing this, it's never been this difficult to try to predict 
you know, what's going to happen next, even what's going to happen in the next quarter, you know, like it's just, it's just crazy. So, uh, the, the volatility, um, and, and what to, how to read it and what to make of it is such a challenge. So if you guys, you know, have any insight into that or want to, you know, chime in as to what you're seeing, or if you have any hunches, please be my guest, literally. <laughs> so, so look, I, I'm with Tim hundred percent labor shortages, those issues around hiring, especially for growth companies. They're always looking for people. And I think one of the secrets is to build a really great company on the inside, because if you're an attractive company, then employees who are looking at opportunities are going to choose yours over other companies. And you do that through culture and building initiatives internally um, through, you know, obviously you have to have a competitive and good compensation program and benefits as well, but really culture challenges learning opportunities, uh, growth opportunities, and, you know, getting rid of the the C players because they're toxic to, uh, to a work culture. So that's really, I think, so important. Um, you know, growth sucks cash, I guess, is the, kind of the phrase we use in my business. And uh, it's also challenging with people. So I, I don't think there's any real secret answers out there. You know, we're all, everyone's struggling with the same, the same dilemma and yeah, it's slowing things down somewhat in terms of delivery and supply chain. Yeah. Well, maybe one tip, cause I'm, I'm with, I'm with Tim and Jonathan. I mean, there's no like magic, uh, answers here, but, um, I was interviewing, uh, a senior executive at career builder the other day. And what she was saying was that one of the problems they see with employers is not um, not ha- having qualifications that are too high. So requiring a college degree when otherwise that potential candidate has all the qualifications necessary for that job. And I think employers need to relook at what they're requiring for particular positions um, because if you're looking for someone that's, um, uh, customer facing, for example, I mean, you're looking for somebody that's client oriented. You're looking for somebody that looks out for the business. And there are other ways to measure that beyond a four year college degree. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's just one thing she said that, um, what she sees is that employers that are losing the talent race right now are inflexible when it comes to job requirements. Yeah. And John, to build on that, you know, as companies are looking for talent, I find too often they're looking in the same places they've always looked. Right. They're fishing in the same pond that they've always put their, 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 their pole and hook into. And the best example, I've got a, a client and Richard, you might've heard this story that uh, he owns, he's a manufacturer here in Atlanta. He, his facility is down by Grant Park in mm-hmm. Atlanta, been around for a long time. And he was sharing this story. He said, Tim, I've got these three women who came, came to work for me recently and they're best employees I've had in a long time. I said, wow, that's, that's great. He says, it's, he said, it's really interesting. They, they all live very close to each other. They get on the same bus every morning. They come to the facility. They work hard all day. They, they, get, they leave work. They get on the same bus. They go back to the same neighborhood. I said, wow, that's interesting. He said, yeah, they're, they're in a federal penitentiary they're prisoners, mm. but they're on a work leave program and they get to get out five days a week to, to go work. Mm. And he said, you know, I never would have thought of hiring, you know, 
federal prisoners to come work in my plant. But the, the market is such, I had to be willing to look places I'd, I hadn't looked before, and yeah. they've turned out to be my best employees. So to me, that's an example of we just, yeah. you know, John, what you're saying, we've got to be willing to, to, to you know, question, you know, what we've done in the past and ask, is that going to work today? Or are we willing to change horses? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it a workforce problem or is it a my requirements problem? You know, and it's easy to say, I can't find anybody. Well, what's your, you know, algorithm for bringing them in? And, you know, like, let's evaluate that for sure. Yeah. So um, kind of in, in an effort to bring value to any business owner listening or any business operator, I kind of want to go through, um, you know, I, I know as we've grown wall control, we've gone through, you know, quote, valleys of death where you hit these certain, these certain headwinds at certain, you know, revenue figures or employee counts. And I kind of want to start with what advice you guys would give to say a new entrepreneur just starting out. Um, somebody who, you know, maybe they are seeing some headwinds at their own job and they're looking to venture out. What are some things to keep in mind when you, when you step into that space? How would you advise somebody? If anybody's got any, any ideas. We might be all a little bit too far away from that space of working with those, you know, zero to 10, you know, startup kind of situations. But, uh, so I'll I'll take a quick stab, just thinking out loud somebody who's, you know, relatively new starting their business is to organize your business as if you're a much larger business. And that comes from Michael Gerber wrote, you know, one of my favorite books, the E-Myth Revisited. And he recommends that he says too often, you know, we start off a business and and we figure, okay, well, I'm just going to operate this business. Like I'm a startup, you know, every day I'm a startup versus what he says, just imagine that, you know, you're running a a, a million dollar, five million, $10 million company, organize your business as if you were a much larger business. And then before you know it, you are a much larger business versus going into it with a mindset of, you know, I don't have any money. I don't have employees. I don't even have customers. And, you know, so I'm playing catch up, you know, from day one. So that'd be my first piece of advice is just... uh, Act and 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 design your business as if you're already a mature business from day one. Yeah, and that goes and to, so let, to designing scalability into it for sure. So yeah, so let's let's talk about design scalability into that concept, uh, leveraging off of what Tim just said. So you build out an organization chart of what this company looks like at a million dollars, or if you're at a million, at five million dollars, and you may be sitting in five different boxes on that organization chart. But circle the one that you routinely touch and that you're willing to let go of next and make a plan in a month, in a quarter, in six months, whatever it is, to get out of that seat, document and detail the the responsibilities of the person who's going to sit in that seat, define and describe what are the attributes, the characteristics, the um, the qualities, the, the technical skills that that person who's going to sit in that seat needs to occupy and start to envision, you know, hiring these people and start to think about, you know, what's the next position after that. So have a, have sort of a, a picture of a one, maybe three year plan of getting out of, of seats that you're sitting in. And then once you have other people sitting in those seats, have them do that same exercise. Yeah, that's really good actionable advice. That's that's awesome. Yeah, and most talking about pricing, I mean, most entrepreneurs when they start out have a uh, sometimes it's a fatal <laughs> belief because it's fatal to the business that if they 
keep a, a low price that will attract clients that a low price does not attract clients. I mean, just like the, the example I gave earlier of my friend Hans with his uh, wooden fret crosses, um, a price is a marketing signal and uh, you've got to price relative to the value of that clients perceive in your product or service. And you've got to have the courage to do that. And part of what gives you the courage to do that is to understand your customers. And it's amazing to me how many people get in business and how little customer discovery they really do. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how little interviewing of actual customers that they do. And so I encourage people when they start out to spend as much time as they possibly can actually talking to real life customers, not trying to sell them anything, mm-hmm. but trying to understand what their problems are. Yeah. They, they move into it without any proof of concept. It's right. an assumption that people will want this thing I'm offering, be it a service or a product. Yeah. And, and they spend so much time on product development um, without understanding what that customer really values and they get they go off on the wrong uh tangent and then they inevitably misprice their product or service yeah um so yeah, raise like a higher price is the fastest way to increase your cash in my opinion in my experience you know running cash flow models of let's well, let's, let's increase sales volume let's reduce gross margin let's let's do all these different things the top line, the increase in price, a dollar more, is probably going to have the biggest impact in most clients, in most companies, on their their cash. So I think that next stage to get over that next valley of death, if I'm not sure listeners will understand what that concept means, but to get to that next plateau, so exactly. be it from the million to the five, or from five to ten, or from one person to five people, from five people to ten people. So is to accumulate cash, accumulating cash and having that as a singular focus allows you to grow and do all these other things. People are focused on figuring out and fixing so many other problems in their business, but they don't pay attention to the cash flow and they don't understand even the profit and loss statement, the balance sheet and cash flow as a third like financial factor. Um, you you need to become an expert and learn this stuff if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And yeah, Tim, I know you have good insight on that. I mean, just the classes I've taken and the boot camps you've I've been in of yours. So yeah. What do you see at that same, you know, I and like like you said, Jonathan, that's good to put it, maybe not valley of death, but a plateau. Like you hit this kind of mm-hmm. ceiling and you're just you're spinning your wheels. How do I get, you know, I'm at 10 million. How do I get to 50? And what what do you guys see? It sounds like cash is obviously, you know, a very big factor, but what can trigger that next kind of move up, you know, and sometimes most businesses, I know for us, as we've gone through, it's like, when we first started, it's like, man, how are we going to do a quarter million dollars a year? How are we going to do a half a million dollars a year? How are we going to do? And it's like, but once you start breaking through stuff, you kind of sail to that next plateau and then you get there and it's like, all right, what, what now, you know? So if you have any insight into that is, you know, sure. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of research that's been done on business growth and barriers to growth. And one thing that I, I, I've seen and seen um, 
in, in the science, so to speak, is that about only about 4% of, of businesses ever get to a million dollars in revenue. And I remember when I first saw that, I thought, wow, I'm surprised by that. Only 4% of businesses ever get past a million dollars in, in annual revenue. And the biggest barrier to growth at that level it's a it's a leadership issue, and it's the inability of the founder of the business to to let go. Because you know when you, when when I start my own business, I'm doing everything right. I'm wearing all the hats. I'm I'm the CFO, the CMO, the COO. I've got all the C C hats on, and I can do that for a while, you know, as a as a new business. But at some point, I've got to be willing to to let go. I've got to be willing to delegate. And I find for many new business owners. That's very hard because no one can ever do it as well as I can. You know, nobody can ever sell like I can sell. Nobody can ever do the books like I can do the books. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to hire that first salesperson. I'm reluctant to hire my first accountant, uh, bring in a, a COO to, to handle day-to-day operations of the business. So it's my unwillingness to let go, to delegate, that gets in the way oftentimes of businesses being able to break that, that million-dollar barrier and and then work towards even even higher levels of revenue. Yeah, and that I mean, perfect for organization conversation. It I mean, it can a lot of things boil down to organization and the inability to do that. And like you say, let go. And Jonathan, that's like to your point about literally drawing out the roles and picking what you're touching the most or what you want to touch the most and what you're willing to let go. That's a great great spot to start. And, and you need to get the right people on your team and in the right seats and doing the right things and getting them doing the right things right. I know that's a mouthful, but it's about teaching them. It's about first getting the most effective people and then about teaching them to be efficient. And, you know, I think probably everyone would agree. That's the ultimate competitive advantage is having the right people, the right people. I mean, I I remember going in business school, this is many years ago, and they'd say the same thing over and over again, that, a an A team with a C concept would outperform a C team with an A concept. And it was all about the people. So, you know, it's not about it's the right people will will figure this all out. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. That, all very good. Um, I like well, well, John. Yeah, I was just gonna add uh to what Tim said. You know the other thing when entrepreneurs start out they get cheap about getting an accountant from the very beginning, get getting a great attorney, business attorney from the very beginning. I mean, they go, you know, get legal agreements, you know, off the internet. I mean, I have seen so many horror stories (laughs) from that. And you, you, a great, great advisors, great coaches, mentors, they're worth their weight in gold. I mean, because they, they, if you get the right people, that will help you get your business set up and then advise you along the way, you'll avoid so many mistakes that otherwise you're almost destined to make because you've tried to do it yourself and you think you can cheap your way out of, uh, you know, growing your business and it, it will come back to bite you. Yeah. Well, that kind of is a good segue too. I wanted to ask you guys about, you know, we're a fam- multi-generational family business. Jonathan, you come from a multi-generational family business. What, what do you guys see? Cause I know firsthand that that presents different challenges than if you're just a solo entrepreneur calling all your shots and doing whatever you want. And you know, hundred percent equity is yours. That's a, a different, a different path. What, uh, I guess speaking to, and I, again, 
I feel like there's a lot of, uh, a lot of successful private businesses become family businesses um, just by function of, hey, you know, cousin over here needs a job. Can you can you bring him on? And you start to accumulate family on your team, which is great, but it does have inherited challenges. And what you know, what are your guys experience, you know, personally or with your clients when it comes to family business? Well, I think you need to start setting up the organization so that the family has a meeting on a regular basis, um, especially when it's multi-generational. I would recommend probably a quarterly or semi-annual meeting where you talk about principles and values and goals, um, where there's an understanding of, you know, ownership. Um, You also need to have, you know, separate from a leadership team meeting, an ownership team meeting. And those are probably the people that are actively involved in owning the the business, um, they're kind of probably like the board or the executive team. And and then, you know, if there are family debates or issues or squabbles, like those should be done in a different room. They should be done outside of the leadership team meetings, outside of the board meetings. They should be done, you know, in, in a separate situation and environment. It's really important to kind of create that that structure where the right conversations are happening in the right rooms, because otherwise you can create a pretty toxic work culture and, you know, family and siblings can get it. It can get ugly, you know, otherwise, if, if it does get ugly, then you've got uh, like the HBO's TV show Succession happening. And, you, you know, you want to avoid that. Yeah, so, absolutely. I appreciate the, the insight for sure into like having the self-awareness both individually and as a business to wear the different hat. Like to, I have my business hat on in this, at this table, you know, with my family, and then we can go fight about, you know, where we're having, you know, grandmother's birthday dinner outside. You know what I mean? Like don't bring this pretend like you're not family when you're having the business conversation, you know? I know like call each other by first names, actually. Yeah. Don't call, don't say mom and dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you go. You know, um, I, I I knew of a family who they did a family calendar every year, and so they had the best family pictures. And the slogan of the calendar every year was, "We put the fun in dysfunction." Yeah. Well, <laughs> the the problem with that is, you know, every family has its dysfunction, right? But you can't bring dysfunction to the business. I mean, to your points, uh, guys, you, you've you've got to create culture. From the very beginning, I think Jonathan, you said that earlier, but uh, I, that's that's got to be the foundation of what you build in a business like that. Yeah, I wrote uh, an article for my newsletter a couple of years ago, and the, the title of the article was uh, uh, "Is Your Company the Red Sox or the Sopranos?" Because I find those are very different cultures, family culture uh, and a and a team culture. Uh, and I think the decision business owner has to make at some point is which one do I want? Do I want to have a family culture where we're all doing different jobs? We're all pitching in. There's not a lot of accountability or do I want a team culture where there's a high level of accountability and, 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 and uh, ex- expectations around performance? 
I'll have business owners sometimes when we talk about values and they'll say, well, one of our values is that, you know, we're like family. And I think you never visited my family because that's, that's <laughs> not the, that's not the family culture that you want for your business. Yeah. So I think companies have to be, I find family businesses tend to be extremely resilient. So in difficult times, like, like, you know, maybe where we are now with a declining economy, you know, family businesses can be highly resilient because you know family members are going to go the extra mile for each other. They're gonna they're gonna do what it takes to keep the business going. And yet, on the flip side, if I'm wanting to grow a really fast growing company uh, based on uh, you know employee perform- performance and getting the best people in the right positions, you know, family business may not be the right structure for that for that business. So I think the business owner has to be very careful how what type of culture they want for their business. Mm-hmm. And Richard, I think to speak to, I don't know what the challenges are within your own family business, but I work with mostly rising gen, next gen leaders. And so they may not yet be owners in that business, but they have an emotional ownership, right? And they may want to play more like the Red Sox and have a team-based culture. And the, the, the parent, typically it's a father, but it might be a mother and father. They might be typically wanting more of a family-based kind of a culture. And so there's that transition that needs to be managed. I find that I play oftentimes in the middle between those two types of uh, those transitions where we're letting go at the older generation level to the younger generation and to the ways of doing things. And, you know, it takes time. Not, Not everyone's willing to let go or transfer equity. Um, as soon as uh, as maybe it, it could or should um, yeah, yeah. That, sometimes you know let go of people too it's difficult you know it's you you have the if your father hired someone who's been working in the company for 40 years and you've now moved them into six different positions and it's really not that good of a fit and now they're not even really a good core value fit i mean it's a tif- it's a difficult situation with that person i've yeah. seen it too many times and that uh, you bring up a good point too just kind of getting everybody on the same page as to, cause everybody, you know, what do you want for the business? Well, we want it to be successful. We want it to be good. We want to, we want, we want it to grow. Like, what does that mean? Like literally what do those words mean to you? You know, like what, and, and I think defining that is so important. And, you know, we see that, you know, what is, what does success look like to you? Does it look like the whole family working there? Or does it look like you two extra revenue over the course of a couple of years, you know? So Definitely getting that defined and getting everybody on the same page so that decisions can be made, hard decisions can be made to take those next steps for sure. So, um, and you guys can, if you got any more to add to that, feel free to, but also would like to jump to what, what, if you have any advice, what would you say, um, to say the business owner or the family that was looking to exit the business? What are things to keep in mind if you're building, you know, say you're not building a multi-generational business, but you're building something to sell. What, what would you say to somebody, um, kind of going down that path? If you've ever, if you've seen any, you know, cause the hard part is, uh, kind of like you were saying, Tim, like you've got a, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff you, you just kind of group think into and you are like, wait a minute. I don't know if, I don't know where the fork in the road was back there, but I know, I don't think I like the path I'm on. So I guess before you get down, get down a path too far. If you have any advice for that person. Yes. Three things come to mind for me, Richard, in, in that, in that, uh, position. One is, uh, start early. 
Uh, most experts will tell you that it takes three to five years to get your business ready for exit, whether it's a sale or whatever the case might be. And too many times uh, someone decides they want to exit their business and they expect within six months to find a buyer and, and, and get out. It, it just rarely happens that way. So number one, start early. Number two, get good help. Get someone like Jonathan, who, if it's a family business, who works with family businesses, because that's a whole different animal when it comes to exiting the business. And putting together a plan for that for that exit for that transition so don't be afraid to to get help to find good good consultants and then i guess the other thing is is about timing and and it's very hard to time an exit in terms of the economy the economy is up the economy's going down but at least be mindful that ideally you want to exit your business when the economy is on an upswing versus a downswing and knowing that the economy usually changes every three to five years. So let's be mindful of the macroeconomic uh, factors that might impact a, a successful exit and try to try to plan accordingly. Yeah, that's really good advice. Like riding a wave, wait till the swell comes back kind of thing. Yeah. Also be really clear about your intentions. Uh, I wrote a blog a few years back that I think was titled, I get a lot of hits on it, was 75% of owners regret selling their business yeah, a year after I, they sell mm-hmm. the business. So be really clear about like, what is your motivation? Are, are you being, are you burnt out? And are you, you feeling like you're being pushed out of this thing? You just got to get out of this thing. Or are you being pulled to something else? You want to travel, you want to spend time with your spouse, you, you have another business you want to start. I mean, be really clear about what your motivations are here. So, and then, and then ask yourself, you know, have I have I done everything I can to make this the most sellable business? Um, have I grown it to the to the size that makes it more saleable? We all know that larger businesses sell at larger multiples because that's just a that's just the fact. You know, have I built a business that's got some kind of recurring revenue stream um, that makes it more valuable because there's there's more uh, trust in what someone's buying? That it's going to continue. Um, have I built a business that's independent of um, any one vendor or any few vendors or any one customer or few customers? I mean, so if there's too much concentration or risk, there's too much risk there. So, you know, what have you done to to really dress up your business and make it the most sellable? And and do you have like do you have a good team that will run the business once you've left? You know, un- unless it's at a size where a strategic buyer is just looking, you know, looking for it and doesn't really care who the people are. But oftentimes you need to think about, you know, is there a second in command that can run this business for small companies? Mm-hmm. So those are a, a few thoughts, things they need to think about. Yeah. I, just adding to that, I, I think one particular thing that's really important is particularly as you get to a certain size. I mean, mo- most of the buyers at a certain size in terms of just numbers are going to be financial buyers. Um, so we're talking about uh, uh, private equity funds, you know, roll-ups, what have you. The first thing they're going to ask for is financials. That's the first thing they're going to ask for. So your financials need to be impeccable. They need to look fantastic. If you can afford to get an audit, that's probably a great idea to get an audit um, as soon as you can do that. And because what when you put that on the table, 
they're these are all financial guys with sharp pencils mm-hmm. and what they're going to do is they're going to tear it apart and they're going to look for ways to devalue your business based on the errors or uh uh what they see that's not quite doesn't quite look right and uh so getting those financials right from the before you even enter the process is really really important and the other thing i would say is um talking about what Tim said about timing, um, you, you've got to realize that somebody buying the business, they're looking to grow the business and you've got to give them, you've got to leave something on the table for them. I mean, you That's cannot, a really good point. Yeah. yeah you cannot yeah. maximize. Yeah. I've, where I've, got, the, I've got it to as good as it can be. That's Here right. You go. Yeah. And, and, uh, really yeah, yeah, exactly. And expecting somebody to pay top dollar for a business like that is just, is, is ludicrous. Right. Mm-hmm. So, You've got to have the business in place where um, it's probably a little uncomfortable to sell because you think, Mm -hmm. I'm leaving money on the table. But what you're doing is you're ensuring by positioning your business that way that you're selling at a better multiple. Yeah, that's a really good point. Leave a, if there's no carrot on a stick, you know, what are you doing? So, absolutely. Yeah, I want to say something about the, as I was thinking about the financial statements, it's like, you know, reading financial statements like reading a good book. If the if the first line is like really captivating, it'll get your attention. So so make sure you're showing like a healthy amount of cash on that first line on mm, that yeah. balance sheet because then it's more interesting to the reader to want to dig a little deeper. You know, so I mean, there's obviously a lot of things you could do to have healthy financial statements, but but to have a a paltry amount of money in your cash position, um, never a good idea. Yeah, and you're. And your December 31st year-end statements with a healthy cash balance. Gotcha. That's, yeah, very good advice. Um, oh, come on in, Tim. Just yeah. one, one more quick thing, Richard. Something that I suggest to my clients if they're thinking about wanting to exit, sell their business, is I say, I tell them, take a month off. Mm-hmm. Because that does, that does two things. One, many of my clients, you know, serial entrepreneurs have never taken a week off, more or less a month. And so it, it's really hard for them to imagine, oh, how, what, how could I take a month off? But when they do take a month off, they find one or two things. They either they enjoy that time off, they enjoy time with their wife mm-hmm. and time with their family, timely time traveling, or they're miserable. And this goes back to what John uh, Jonathan was saying, that a lot of times people sell their business and they're miserable afterwards because they don't know what to do. They've mm-hmm. not planned on you know, the next step in their lives. So for, for one, it's a good experiment for the seller to take a month off and see what that's like. On the flip side, I don't think there's anything healthier for a business than the business owner being gone for a month because for that to happen, the business now needs to work, has to work independently of that business owner. And many small businesses aren't able to operate that way. And yet to an, to a buyer, that's one of the most important things that they're looking at is that, you know, if I'm buying John's business, can this business run without John? And one test of that is to be able to say, you know what, I take a month off and the business ran beautifully. So, I, you know, take a month off. It's a good, good test for the owner. It's a good test of the business. Awesome. That is- you might discover that if you're half retired, it's not a bad business to own. Yeah. It spits out a lot of cash. <laughs> I might you can stay. do a lot of traveling. You have a place to go to get away from your spouse yeah. because they don't want to see you yeah. all the time because they're they're not used to having you around the house anymore. So it's it's a good thing. Yeah, you might actually find that there are a few areas of the business that run better without oh, you yeah. being around mucking it up, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, they're like, thank God he left for a little bit. Now we can fix all this. So yeah, that's that's a perfect segue actually um, into kind of 
you know, you guys, um, you've been in industry to the point where now you're advisors and coaches yourself. Uh, what would you, and that's, that's, you know, the advice you've already given is fantastic, but what advice would you give that, you know, that entrepreneur who just, it's kind of like a, you know, you're a type A personality. You're always getting after it. You're always, you know, taking in, you know, business podcast, you're reading books, that kind of thing. How do you, how do you yourself kind of let go and how do you balance that professional side versus, you know, what your hobbies and interests are and how, how do you know when, uh, somebody you're, you know, advising, maybe they're, they're burnout and they don't even know it. Like what are some, some signs and some remedies to, uh, that, that mind that just can't stop. If anybody's got any, I know, uh, you know, I'm, I personally enjoy cycling and I know, and running, and I can tell if I look like on my Strava, which is like the app for tracking it. If I haven't logged anything for a couple of weeks, I start like I'm mentally in a different place than I am before. And it's like these kind of, that's a reset for me where I say, okay, I need to take a step back and maybe, set this down for a little bit and get outside and do this other completely different thing with a completely different group of people that takes me away from it. Well, Richard, I think, uh, my lifestyle and my website have always had lots of images of cyclists, hikers, um, surfers. So I think I tend to attract people as clients who are seeing that life balance is really important. Um, and because I've made a, a lifetime decision around that myself, I, I lost my father um, when I was two. He was 35. He had a second massive coronary. Um, you know, he was already accomplished. He had a Yale law degree, was in the family business. Uh, I never was going to die before I was 35. So I have made a conscious effort of kind of leading that kind of a lifestyle. And so I think I attract people who enjoy those type, that type of a lifestyle. I mean, you know, Tim might have a different experience and can speak more to the, the, the hard driving entrepreneur, but like you got to take a break. Otherwise you're going to burn yourself out. Absolutely. And to add to that, I think what many business owners uh, forget or overlook is that they're a role model for their employees and so if they're working 100 hours a week and, you know, not putting time in family, not enjoying life outside of business, it's very likely that that becomes the organizational culture. And now their employees are doing the same thing. And so they're not setting a good example. You know, they're telling their employees, oh, you need to take some time off, take vacation. And if they're not doing that, it's unlikely that their, particularly their direct reports are going to do that as well. So they've got to set a good example for their people. While even though they may not be comfortable wanting to take time off, at the very least, they need to set the example for their people. Yeah. And you could speak to what you do with your time off. I know you've done some pretty cool walks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. I've been very fortunate in taking time off. I've walked the uh, the El Camino in Spain two different times. Both of those were one month walks. And uh, last year I went to Portugal and, and did something very similar and just found for me, it's it's great to be able to get away, to disconnect, to think in a in a deeper way than I'm accustomed to when I'm, when I'm working crazy hours here. And amazingly, my my clients got along just fine when I was gone. <laughs> yeah, you probably came back. I mean, better than when you left for sure. I've, I mean, I've read all kind of stuff about this is just on a tangent, but just how good walking is for humans. Just through you know millennia of walking, it's just crazy. Like 
biologically, it's, it's good for business. <laughs> well, I, I want to add something Tim said. He talked about deep thinking. See, I think folks that don't do this don't uh, and take that time off and get away and take a hiatus, a sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. Don't understand the value of that to the business um, because you come back from that with all sorts of a refreshed spirit, lots of ideas, lots of different ways to look at the business that you would never have had if you just stayed at the desk, hunched over uh, with your head down. Absolutely. And I, I think there's just a tremendous value to the business. Uh, so if you really care about the business, uh, you don't stay in it 12 months, 365. Uh, you don't. You you get away. You create um, – um, and frankly, folks, the the concept is as old as Sabbath. I mean, this is like a yeah. <laughs> this is like thousand year concepts, right? I mean that that you get away, you create space, and you come back refreshed and better for it. Absolutely, it's good for the business to be away from the business. I mean, that's absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool, guys. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I want to be respectful of that, but I also don't want to leave any stone uncovered that we haven't talked about that you guys want to get to. Is there anything, you know, we're going to, when we when we sign off, we're going to go through and how our audience can find you guys, but any topic or anything you guys want to throw out there that we haven't touched on today? Oh, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I definitely, you know, if I was listening, I would think there's a lot of I'm going to, there's stuff I'm going to take away from it for sure. And I've had conversations with you guys all before. So it's like, you know, I've learned new things today myself. So yeah. Well, anything, Jonathan, you can think of on your end? No, I'm, I'm, I'm needing to wrap up for a phone call that's about to come in, but I would say that, you know, the importance of clarity breaks and taking those so important. Uh, You might find some clarity breaks from listening to podcasts like this. Um, You get them from being in a, in a peer group from working with a coach, a mentor, from reading a book, from taking a walk, you know, taking a hike, uh, clearing your brain out with, uh, you know, a long bike ride or a swim. So important to have that. So you can come back with a different perspective. Absolutely. Well, that we'll wrap it up on that guys. Um, we'll go back down the line, Jonathan, one more time. If you want to tell our audience where they can find you, where they can get your books, where they can listen to your podcast, uh, you got the floor. Yeah, great. You can find me at thegoldhillgroup.com. Pretty easy to spell. Gold Hill Group, The Gold Hill Group. Uh, my book and podcast have the same title. Uh, it's called Disruptive Successor. Uh, the book is a guide to driving growth in your family business. And the podcast is for next generation leaders, folks like yourself, Richard, who are scaling the family business. Awesome. Thank you. John? So my website is uh, johnray.co. You can find me there and connect with me there. I do a lot of um, uh, posting on pricing on LinkedIn. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn, John, John Ray, that's R-A-Y, John Ray one is my handle on LinkedIn. And my podcast is the price and value journey. And you can find that at pricevaluejourney.com or on your favorite app. Awesome. And Tim. Richard, first, I want to thank you for, for having us on today. This has been great. Uh, the, the, my website is smallbusinessmattersonline.com. I have a monthly newsletter. It's uh, free of charge that any of your listeners can sub- subscribe to. I also have a, a podcast, Small Business Matters Podcast, and a couple books on Amazon. So uh, you can check those out as well. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure audience has as well. And uh, yeah, look forward to chatting with all you guys again soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Organization Conversation is brought to you by Wall Control, a family-owned and operated producer of best-in-class wall-mounted organizers for your home or business, made right here in the USA. To learn more, go to wallcontrol.com.